It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Awkward uh, change in the landscape of the chapel. Uh, one of our projectors went on meltdown, literally, and which is the one I always consult. So I usually turn this way. So if any of you are used to that, anyone especially watching on a video, imagine what it would look like when Eric turns this way. So that's what I'm gonna have to do for this particular message. I have no idea what's gonna happen. I mean, something could blow up inside of Eric uh, trying to do this, but uh, this particular message is one of the rare moments in World War I. If you, if you don't know, if you're just sort of uh, you know, joining up and here you are, episode 24 in a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War I. Uh, this is uh, one of the rare moments in World War I that is actually a delight. Usually I have to take something very dark and turn it, and turn it into something edifying, uh, when in actuality in this story, it's actually a glimmer of what people would typically call humanity, which is interesting because you know, whether or not these people in this story know Jesus, it is interesting how there is a yearning inside of us to actually function well as humans. We just don't have the power to do it. And there's something very, very special about this story uh, that is hard to describe until you sort of go through it. But we're at the very end of uh, 1914, and we're in December, and technically it's Christmas Eve. And this, this war was supposed to end in a couple months. Uh, the Kaiser, in Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm, who we've been calling William, uh, made a declaration to all the troops, I'll see you before the leaves fall. And that was the plan. They, in 39 days, they were going to uh, capture Paris, and then they were going to turn and silence Russia, and this thing was going to be over. And it almost was. And if you've gone through this series, you know that it's actually more improbable that we're continuing, and that this war is going to continue, than uh, that it would have ended. And however, it's not going to end. We're going to end up with something known as a Western Front uh, in France and Belgium that is uh, quite uh, the display of what we've termed stalemate. It's entrenched warfare instead of what historically has been known as movement warfare, you know, where you attack and you know, swing your sword or shoot your gun and or wrestle the guy to the ground. This is a very different sort of warfare where you dig trenches and put up your barbed wire and your breastworks and you shoot at each other and you, sh you shell each other. You send forth artillery shells <laughs> over and over. I mean, it's a disastrous uh, thing to study trench warfare, which I'm gonna go a little into it today, not because I wanna discourage you, but, but you know, here it is. I'm saying this is a happy message. Yeah, I'm gonna start by uh, going into the trenches, and that's why this is so happy. The contrast of the trenches uh, in this, uh, from trench life to what we're going to discover is quite something. So uh, this is called Going Over the Top. And that's my shortened name for it. This is the actual name I wanted to have for it, but it's a really long title. Going over the top like a Christian. So when you're in the trenches, you are uh, in a very dangerous situation where even sticking a finger above uh, the trench line can get it shot at and knocked off. And so you hide in your trench, that's your safety. And yet when you're uh, 
when your commanding officer tells you that it's time to attack, which happens, they go on the offensive and they have to try and get through the barbed wire and attack and get through the enemy's barbed wire and somehow evading all uh, machine gun fire and artillery blasts, make it into the other person's trench and take them out. That sounds fun, doesn't it? And this territory in between the barbed wire, so you had your trench and then you had your barbed wire. And then you had a space, and then you had their trench and their barbed wire. I should say their barbed wire and their trench. That would make more sense, maybe. And that gap in between was called no man's land. And one of the greatest challenges in World World War I was dealing with barbed wire. And it's a problem that most of us have probably never thought much about. But this invention that had just come about in the agricultural community to help with cattle suddenly one soldier one day decides, hey, we could stick this up. And it is an incredible defense measure because the enemy's running at you and they can't get by. In fact, they try and get by it and it snags them. And then they're a sitting duck. And so this is a tremendous impediment. And, but once one side started using it, the other side starts using it, you create these elaborate nets of barbed wire. And it's true. It's nearly impossible to get through. So they tried bombing it with artillery shells, figuring that, you know, how do you get rid of this? They cannot figure out how to get rid of barbed wire, how to get through it easily, because that's one of the number one impediments of an offensive maneuver to try and attack the other guys is to get through barbed wire, which is ironically one of the reasons why the tank, if not the primary reason the tank was invented. The tank was invented to flatten barbed wire. Isn't that an ironic invention uh, purpose for the tank? So going over the top is that idea of getting out of your trench and running towards the enemy line. And it is the most fearful moment for a soldier, also the most adrenalized moment for a soldier, but it's hard to do. And you're doing it with your machine gun in hand and you're ready to take the offensive and destroy that enemy. And oftentimes you whip yourself up into a fury. You want to remember all the bad things the enemy has done. And then you're going to get out, uh, go over the top of that trench and attack. And I mean, if you don't have some fury, if you don't have some anger, it's really hard to do it in a nice mood. You know, when you're laughing and chuckling. You know, this this is intense. Your life is on the line. So when I say going over the top like a Christian, well, I'm saying that there's a better way to do this. I'm not a big fan of war, even though I seem to talk about it a lot. I'm not a big fan of shooting people. I'm not a big fan of declaring someone to be the enemy and I want to take them out. And yet I know I'm in a battle spiritually, but my battle isn't against flesh and blood. And I want to know how to fight my battle with the spiritual powers And I want to know the distinction of how I fight differently with the elements in this natural realm, with humans. What do I do there? If I'm entrenched on one side and they're entrenched on another, I don't like that. I don't want to be fighting them. You know how many people in this war feel that exact thought right about now? And especially when you're getting to December 24th and you're thinking, I would rather be home right now and I really don't care about this war. Who got us into this war? Why are we fighting this war? I can't remember why we're fighting this war. And that's the way most of these men are feeling right now as we uh, enter this portion of the story. So going over the top and its multiple meanings. You know, if you do something that is over the top, that means you're going way beyond the call of duty, right? And I was thinking that's a pretty good description. When you talk about what it means 
to love your enemy. Just the entire notion that is wrapped in this message is really profound. And the fact that it's even called going over the top, that's a good description of what a Christian is supposed to do. See, it's not just that we accept the fact that they're different than us, and we will choose not to rebuke the world for their terrible sin that they are involved in, but that we're going to go over the top with love, that we're going to go over the top in how we care for them, in how we pray for them, in how we serve them. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty cool uh, term to sort of mix in here, even though that's, that isn't necessarily the original reason I got it out on the table. So the advent of trench warfare and the invention of true misery. So this is a quote that I cobbled together, and it's sort of a half quote, half paraphrase, half, well, if you could have three halves. Uh, and maybe I should say one part quote, one part paraphrase, and one part weaving a whole bunch of things together to knit it together. So this is uh, sort of the comp a compilation from Dan Carlin's podcast called Blueprint for Armageddon. And this is actually, I would say, the very beginning of this entire series was when I was, uh, I was dropping off uh, one of my vehicles for hail damage to get it fixed. And so someone, it was Josh Kinnebrew that had, uh, he drove down with me, so he was going to take me back. And uh, when I hopped into his car, on popped uh, that podcast, and it was in this exact spot of describing trench, uh, trench life. And I was so intrigued. Uh, I don't know, you're going to say, why were you intrigued by this? It's the human side of it that is so fascinating to me of what I would do if I was in this situation. So I'm going to read to you, again, it's a paraphrase, it's not an exact quote, and this is a combination of many uh, of his episodes and it, you know, all into one little long quote. So this is what he said, dig a hole five feet deep in your backyard and go out in, in Go out and just sit in it. And when it rains and turns your hole into a mud pit, try and get comfortable and go to sleep. Oh, did I mention that there are 10 dead bodies in there with you? Some from as recent as 20 minutes ago, some from two years ago, still struggling to stay buried beneath the earth. The stench is so rancid, so foul, that it seeps deeply into everything. When you eat bread, it tastes rotten. When you drink water, it tastes like death. The horror of rotting flesh hangs about like a fog. Oh, and did I mention the flies? They line your little backyard hole like carpet. There are, there are millions of them, and if you kill them off, they come back just as thick the next day. They are always there, crawling on you, in your eyes, up your nose, in your mouth, on your food, and on the decaying bodies around you, constantly. Yes, and there are rats, everywhere feeding on this death, figuring you to be one of the dead, nibbling on you as if you were a bit of cheese, and did I share with you that once you get into this hole, you have a severe case of dysentery? This means that your digestive system is extremely unstable, and whatever comes into your body must be expelled violently and often. And yet if you lift your head up out of this hole to go find a latrine, there are a thousand machine guns fixed on your position just waiting for you to be so stupid. If you brave all that like a good soldier, then the constant boom, blast, and bombardment of mortar shells are sure to destabilize you. They explode near your hole with unrelenting constancy, attempting to scare you into retreat all day and all night. It's as if you were tied to a wooden post while someone wearing a blindfold towers over you holding a pole with a long chain dangling from it with a spike ball on its end. Every five to ten seconds they swing this spike ball directly at you in hopes of hitting you. And whenever you whimper too loudly, they better ascertain your position and swing that spike ball closer. Whew. 
So welcome to trench life. You see, those that are in the commanding officer position, the generals back home, they're usually 10 miles behind uh, the activity, living in chalets with all the pleasantries of life. And they're making decisions that are causing men on the front to live like this. You can understand why men at the front are going to start to question things. And that hasn't begun at full levels yet, but you're going to see a absolute revolt that is going to take place in certain military units in the upcoming years, and which is ultimately going to lead uh, on the Russian side to a Russian revolution and communism that is going to take over the country. In other words, this is all boiling. It's a very, very difficult uh, situation to be a part of. Our culture is mired in not the exact same thing. To call what our normal life is that, that would be an incorrect statement. But we have a form of trench warfare, and it is miserable. Right now in our culture, the devil is sponsoring a two-party system. He's always into a two-party system, and he wants to create the catastrophic divide in each of our lives so that we identify ourselves on one side and hate the people on the other side. And if you haven't noticed, this is actually a very, very real thing in our current culture here in America. Now, we've always been a two-party system. I grew up in a two-party system. And the, the Democrats and the Republicans never liked each other. However, there was a certain degree of cordiality. You know, they would make fun of each other, but they could have a dinner party together. And they could laugh, you know, at jokes together. But now there's no laughing together. It is very serious. And they hate each other. And in fact, it's gotten to the point where they will say out loud that they want the other person dead. And we have witnessed this up close, and it is a very, very dangerous thing. It's a very, very dangerous trend, and it's similar to what I would say was happening on the Western Front, entrenchment, where you have no intention of giving your territory up, and yet you don't know exactly how to take their territory, so you just loft missiles at it all day long. And so you're killing each other, but you're not actually enhancing anything. And this is the devil's game. He loves to get us into a two-party system. And, you know, if I were to start breaking down uh, different political views, I could get you guys whipped up into a frenzy very quickly. In other words, there are sharp belief systems that we have, and it's like, now that, I agree, Eric, that point, that deserves a fight right there. And I'm not going to argue that there are certain things that deserve to be stood for. However, how we go over the top is very, very different than how the devil wants us to go over the top. When we as believers find ourselves in a entrenched situation, what do we do? Our desire is not to find ourselves on the opposite side of the Western Front from different uh, groups of people in this world. That isn't what we desire. Our desire is not to be entrenched against the homosexual community, as if that's a better way to do it. Our desire is not to just be entrenched against the liberals, uh, and you know, can, since probably most of us in here would lean conservative, right? And so, what is it that a Christian is supposed to do? So, the secret of breaking the stalemate. So, this is my hint, uh, and even though it won't make sense right at the beginning, it involves chocolate, plum puddings, and a soccer ball. Does that help explain it? Uh, all right. So, this is from Winston Groom uh, from his book, A Storm in Flanders. So, he's writing about a, a soldier named Willie Fraser. So this is what he says. Willie Fraser's shoulder had been shattered by shrapnel. 
There was fighting and killing all around, and the Germans captured him. Having studied German in Frankfurt in 1909, he was astonished to hear a German sergeant yell out an order to shoot him. Willie yelled to a German officer. When the officer spoke, Willie recognized his accent, and he asked if he was from Frankfurt. When the officer replied that he was, Willie asked him in German, do you wish you were there now? The two men exchanged forced grins, and the officer ordered his men not to harm Frazier. Now, the reason I share that story is because it's sort of one of those typifications of awaking from your stupor of hatred and anger and the fight. And this is the way it, it needs to be for many of us, that if you were to actually have one of those human moments with those that have been pitted against you ideologically in this culture, that you are being told to hate, now, no one actually just comes up to you and says, you need to hate them. It's just that that is the result of being fed what you're being fed, because you are just, you cannot believe they're doing that. Uh, and there they go again. And, act, and as a result, you find yourself whipped into a frenzy. The same thing the Germans have here. They capture Willie Frazier, his, he's, has you know, a shoulder that's been destroyed by shrapnel, kill him. And that's just what you do. You don't let a soldier live. That's all we need is that guy to come back and fight another day. And yet, suddenly he speaks their language. He cuts through the fog and asks a very human question to the commanding officer. Wouldn't you like to be there now? I would. I like this guy. You see, but if you stopped with every soldier before you shot him, you'd probably find, I like this guy. <laughs> you see, we don't need to hate those that oppose us. And that's part of the bait that we have been uh, made vulnerable to. So Julius Kuchin, I don't even know if I'm spelling his name correctly because I got this from an audio and I actually transcribed this, but I think that's, that's my best guess. But he's a German soldier and this is what he wrote as his remembrances of Christmas in the trench in 1914. Christmas in the trenches, it was bitterly cold. We had procured a pine tree for there were no fir trees to be had. We had decorated the tree with candles and cookies. We had imitated the snow with wadding. Christmas trees were burning everywhere in the trenches, and at midnight all the trees were lifted onto the parapet. With their burning candles and along the whole line, German soldiers began to sing Christmas songs in chorus. O thou blissful, O thou joyous mercy, bringing Christmas time. Hundreds of men were singing the song in that fearful wood. Not a shot was fired. The French had ceased firing along the whole line. That night I was with a company that was only five paces away from the enemy. The Christmas candles were burning brightly and were renewed again and again. For the first time, we heard no shots. From everywhere throughout the forest, one could hear powerful carols come floating over, peace on earth and such. The French left their trenches and stood on the parapet without any fear. There they stood, overpowered by emotion, and all of them with cap in hand. We too had issued from our trenches. We exchanged gifts with the French, chocolate, cigarettes, etc., they were all laughing, and so were we. Why? We did not know. Then everybody went back to his trench, and incessantly the carols resounded evermore, solemnly, evermore longingly, O thou blissful. Isn't that an amazing event that actually happened in history? That these soldiers on Christmas Eve suddenly are going to risk their life and step out of their trench, which up to this point, all you need to do is stick a finger out and it will be shot at. And yet 
they're going to step out, cap in hand, no weapons, and they're going to exchange things with each other. It's almost like their own rendition of Christmas. And that's just one story. This is the whole Western front that this is going to happen on. And yet, it's not coordinated, which is, again, one of the most extraordinary things that people in history have not been able to describe why soldiers would do this and like how it could happen. William Quinton, who's a British soldier, said it this way, all around us lay about three inches of snow, a typical picture postcard Christmas. Things were very quiet. That peace and goodwill to all men feeling seemed to be in the air. We could hear the Germans still strafing up Ypres away, but the next night, Christmas Eve, even up there, it was much quieter. Something in the direction of the German lines caused us to rub our eyes and look again. Here and there, showing just above their parapet, we could see very faintly what looked like very small colored lights. What was this? Was it some prearranged signal in the forerunner of an attack? Or was it to make us curious and thus expose ourselves to the sudden raking of machine gun fire? We were very suspicious, and we were discussing this strange move of the enemy when something stranger happened. The Germans were actually singing. Not very loud, but there was no making it. There was no f making it. I, I'm not sure what that means. But we began to get interested. The enemy at least were going to enjoy themselves as much as the circumstances would permit. Suddenly across the snow-clad no-man's land, a strong, clear voice rang out, singing the opening lines of Annie Laurie. It was sung in perfect English, and we were spellbound. No other sound but this unknown singer's voice. To us, it was like the war had suddenly stopped, stopped to listen to this song from one of the enemy, not a sound from friend or foe. And as the last notes died away, spontaneous outbursts of clapping rose from our trenches. Encore! Good old Fritz! So I'm very intrigued by this, as I'm guessing you would be too, just sort of seeing this dynamic take place, where hatred has ruled. The entire goal of a military machine is to convince your soldiers that what you are fighting is a just war, and that those you are fighting deserve to die. And if they don't die, it's going to be hell for you. And so as a result, there's a motivation. And yet what we see here is something completely different, a turning of the tables, a, an exiting out of that trench, making yourself vulnerable, and actually imparting life instead of a machine gun bullet. Here's history.com, and this is its simple way of saying it. At the first light of dawn on Christmas Day, 1914, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines across no man's land, calling out, Merry Christmas, in their enemy's native tongues. At first, the Allied soldiers feared it was a trick, but seeing the Germans unarmed, they climbed out of their trenches and shook hands with the enemy soldiers. The men exchanged presents of cigarettes and plum puddings and sang carols and songs. Some Germans lit Christmas trees around their trenches, and there was even a documented case of soldiers from opposing sides playing a good-natured game of soccer. And then here's another great uh, end. I don't know, a statement that sort of touches you in the depths of your soul. The Christmas truce is what it was called, was one of the last examples of the outdated notion of chivalry between enemies in warfare. It was never repeated. The generals, when they found out, the, the commanding officers of the military on every side were horrified. 
that this took place. Talk about undermining the entire martial quality of your war machine is to exchange presents with the enemy. And so this was forbidden, and they made great efforts in the future to make sure that this would never happen again. Isn't it funny that when you hear that, you sort of get mad at the generals? You're like, what? And they were not impressed with this. But every single one of us, this is like our favorite part of World War I. And for these soldiers, this is their favorite part. It's interesting because you can look at wars in a, in a general sense, but if you look at it in a specific sense, this is, this is what warms your heart. It's not the killing, it's not the bravery that we're jumping out of the, the, the trench and running toward the enemy. It's the, it's the Germans getting out of their trench and walking unarmed towards the British side saying, Merry Christmas. And there's something about that that is so daring, so bold, so brave, but it's a different sort. And when I say us going over the top like a Christian, our weaponry has been given to us not so that we could take out other humans, but so that we could build up other humans. The weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. We are built to do great deeds on this earth and to win great battles. However, what is this weaponry? It's not a machine gun. It's not a, some artillery gun. It is actually love and kindness. It is daring and it is bold. However, it's bold with love. It's bold to go over the top without a weapon and say, Merry Christmas. I mean, that is about as crazy as you can get. And yet there is something that is uh, very attractive to each of our souls as we hear it. The very real no man's land, the territory that no one knows how to access. So one of the number one things that I'm getting asked these days, how do we reach across this divide? How do we somehow communicate to the people in this culture that have no interest in Jesus Christ, that have a totally contorted view of the church, that have a totally contorted view of Jesus Christ himself, how do we reach them? Because we've always struggled as the church with, with, with reaching the lost. We've always had classes on it, like this is how you do it, and here's a technique here, and here's a little uh, you know, flyer here or a you know, track here, and this is a way you can do it this way. Well, suddenly a lot of those ways have gone defunct, and they don't have the same power as they used to have. And so we, we really do feel similar to this, I would say, as Christians, where it's like, I don't want to be in this trench, and I don't want to be on the opposite side from those that are firing at us right now, but I'm not sure how to get them a message, which is, I'm not wanting to shoot at you. I actually want to meet you. I want to talk with you. I want to share my plum pudding with you. Hey, I have a soccer ball. You see, this is such a different way of fighting a battle, and the generals don't like it, right? You take, uh, you know, part of the news network system is based on this two-party system. I mean, they thrive off of it. They create controversy. I mean, the best news shows are the ones that take the two different vantage points and then have them argue in front of the world. And the news networks just love this stuff. They love controversy. And yet, God is not into division and controversy. 
And so as a result, the way that we respond to this is of the utmost importance. So going over the top like a Christian with a soccer ball, not a gun. Now, I know some of you uh, might have noticed I didn't include cigarettes in my list of what we could use, but, you know, I, I'm not saying that they may not have a benefit in, you know, as a gift, but that's not necessarily what I'm going to recommend. Uh, so I picked the soccer ball, the gun, but you could, uh, soccer ball, not the gun. You could use plum pudding. Uh, I don't know if there was anything else. Oh, chocolate. That was the other one. So, you know, I've given you some good options of what you can use here. So, prates, which is a Greek word. Uh, and I'm going to call that the soccer ball, not the gun. You see, Jesus uh, is going to model something, and then as the New Testament is going to unfold, this idea of parates is going to be brought to life. Now, this is something that the Spirit of God needs to work in us. It is something that we could call a gift of the Holy Spirit. So that when the Holy Spirit moves in, He causes us to behave differently in our trench, he doesn't allow us to foster hatred and anger and frustration and irritation with the enemy, even though machine gun bullets are, uh, are flying overhead and you know, artillery shells are going off and shrapnel's flying everywhere and we have flies lining our trench. And if these guys would just stop firing, we could get out of here. You know, this is the classic thing. It baits us. But instead of being baited towards that, towards anger and fury and frustration, the Spirit of God gifts us with something different. He gifts us with something supernatural in this very difficult situation, and that's known as parates. I know that doesn't help you unless you know Greek. So it's typically translated as gentleness, mildness, or meekness. It's a control of the inner man to give something very different than you would naturally give. So, as many have described it over the years, it's the opposite of what a human would normally give in a situation. So what would a human normally give if they're in a trench and they're being shot at? They would give a shot back. You know, if you're being shot at, what are you gonna do? You're gonna shoot back. You're not just gonna sit there and take it, this is war. And that's where war comes from. However, the Christian is wired differently because they have been given the Holy Spirit, and they've been given parates. And they now have the capacity to respond in the opposite manner than what a human would normally do. And that's what gentleness is. Gentleness is what we call the opposite spirit. So if someone is using anger towards you and swinging uh, their, their fist towards your nose, gentleness would be whatever the opposite of that would be, which might be to... Uh, forgive. It might be to humbly allow them to hit you in the nose and say, thank you for that. I probably deserve that. And whatever the opposite would be, that's what it is. So I'm going to describe gentleness as the opposite spirit. And here's a description. The opposite spirit, it's softness when struck with hardness, mildness when hit with harshness, and a gentle word when belted with a spiteful word, Gentleness is divine control and governance over the inner man, holding the flesh in check that it not be given voice or strength in the matter. It's setting down your gun, emerging from your trench, and strolling into no man's land with a soccer ball in hand. And that's about as crazy of a thing as you could ever do. You know what Jesus is going to do? That. When the, the enemy is coming at him with 
you know, a cat of nine tails, he comes back with love. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be powerful or that it could possibly win. When he is nailed to a tree and they're spiteful, they're mocking, they're holding him in derision, what does he give them? Forgiveness? That doesn't sound powerful, and yet it's the greatest military maneuver that has ever taken place in Earth's history, is being wielded in that exact moment. See, proates enables the kingdom behavior to come through this life. That gentleness, that opposite, when it's harsh, we can give soft. And that is an amazing quality that each of us has access to. It's like God gives us a soccer ball in the trench, and we're like, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? And then in our other hand, he gives us some chocolate and a little plum pudding. We're like, what? How's this supposed to solve this, God? He goes, these are my tools. And if, you know, in all of World War I history, it's arguable that this is the greatest moment for most people when they study it. It's like, what's your favorite moment in World War I? The Christmas truce. Well, that wasn't war. That doesn't count, or does it? Because it's the one time we see the power of plum pudding, the power of uh, chocolates and the soccer ball. We see the power of parates when it boldly maneuvers itself. It's like, there it is, right there. Now, that's what I'm talking about. You see, and the fact that the enemy does not want this and wants to squelch this makes total sense to me. But could you imagine, uh, I, I remember there's this one quote in history, it's like, what if, uh, what if all the nations gave a war and no one showed up for it? What they're saying is, what if the soldiers just finally said, look, I don't want to fight this, uh, here's, my, here's chocolate, plum pudding, and a soccer ball, let's, let's play it out. It so many of us have gotten caught up in the momentum of a culture, the momentum of uh, the political scene that we lose sight of the fact that we are first and foremost believers. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. And then there's our word. In proates, in that gentleness, in that mildness, in that meekness, in that opposite spirit, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You see, so many people are taken captive by the enemy to do his will. Do you remember that commanding officer and Willie Frazier is just about to get shot and he says, you from Frankfurt? Don't you wish you were there now? You see, it's, it's like the opposite spirit. Instead of giving them a bullet back or a spiteful word back, like, how dare you care, you know, kill me, you know, you, you know, the hood, you know, and yelling at them all these curses. Instead, he's going to, with parates, correcting them that are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Come to their senses. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you come to your senses and where you suddenly realize that the very people that we're sort of wishing would die 
in the political side of things, it's like, oh boy, if that whole group of people just died, like they were all in one building for some convention, then it got bombed. It's like, oh, wouldn't that be great? This is actually thoughts that will go through the heads of conservatives. And yet you come to your senses and you realize that is actually your mission field. I mean, what kind of missionary are you if you're desiring all the people that you're supposed to be reaching with the gospel to be blown up? not even knowing Jesus. And so you start to come to your senses. It's because Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit are gentle and they're correcting us. You see, this is the way God has rescued us. We were enemies with the God Most High. We had our machine guns out defending our position and he came out with chocolate, plum pudding, and a soccer ball. And he has set a pattern for us. He has given us something, given us a model that is so altogether bewildering, and it doesn't really fit into the World War I landscape. I mean, that's the one thing you have to admit about it. It's like, no, wait a minute, I thought, Eric, we were talking about World War I. I know, we are. And it's really hard to imagine, and if there was a moment that I would love to just sort of peer into, it's this moment. All the other moments I could do without. I don't want to live in a trench. I'd love to get out of the trench and go to the middle of no man's land and meet up with this scene. And you know, there are people in history that want to know who won the soccer game. It's funny. And no one knows who won the soccer game. And uh, it's just like, and, but who initiated it? Some people say it was the French. Some people say it was the Germans. But this happened all along the line. And this line is multiple hundreds of miles long. And so it's not just one person that initiated it. However, here's my thought. Even though it wasn't necessarily one obvious person that initiated, if we were to write a novel about this and or turn it into a movie, I would probably want to make it a one-person thing that's going to start this. Like this one guy that's like, hey, guys, I have an idea. And everyone's like, no way, that wouldn't work. It's like, I'll do it then. And this one guy gets out, and the other guy's like, he's doing it, he's doing it. It's like he sets down his gun, and instead he carries a soccer ball with him. See, that's my at least mental picture of how this is going to start, because it usually starts with one person. Usually it starts with one guy who's willing to do the opposite. And there's some great stories in World War I that I, I can't say are better than this, because this, yeah, this is really good. But some of the stories of guys that are going to get out of the trench go over the top, not to fight, but to rescue someone that's lying there. Even the enemy uh, who's, who's suffering in no man's land, and they'll go to help him. I mean, those are great stories. And that's getting out of your trench and going over the top like a Christian. Emerging from your trench without your weapons, without your earthly weapons. You see, you have spiritual weapons, and when you're emerging out of your trench with your spiritual weapons, they don't look like weapons, do they? You know, your soccer ball, your plum pudding, and your chocolate, that doesn't look like weapons, and yet it is a weapon. The weapons of our warfare are mighty. Love doesn't look like much of a weapon. Gentleness doesn't look like much of a weapon. Kindness doesn't look like a weapon, but it is. It's just not a harmful weapon that is going to hurt people. It's one that is going to rescue them because it's going to awaken them to their senses so that they can see where they're at. What are you wanting to bring to the battle of our day? A gun or a soccer ball? So for each one of us, 
This is a difficult one, and I think we struggle with the practicality of something like this. I don't want to antagonize the enemy any more than we as the conservative side already have. My desire is to win them to Christ. That doesn't mean there's not a point where I must stand my ground, and I must be very clear in my uh, beliefs and that I will not compromise from this. In other words, it's not the absence of firmness. It's not the absence of boldness. It's not the absence of a clear voice. It's just the presence of something the whole time. That, that those that oppose me would always know, well, one thing we know about Eric Ludi is he loved us. And that isn't always said by, about the conservatives. Think about that. When you think about the conservatives today, they're not known for their love. They're known for their conservatism. And conservatism isn't the badge of the Christian, ironically. You will know my disciples by their conservatism. You will know my disciples by their love for one another. But it doesn't end with love for one another. Then it cascades outward. And I want to be known as a believer. I want to go over the top in my life to rescue the lost instead of harm them. I, have, I don't know that anyone's ever called me you know, a non-resistance guy. You know, and I've, I've, I've been very watchful never to make a declaration you know, that I'm, you know, I believe that we should fight a just war and shoot, you know, shoot bullets at people or that we should never fight, we should never pick up a gun and never do that. I am not a, if you gave me the option right now, I would not lean towards picking up a gun and shooting an enemy. I would not. Uh, I, but at the same time, I've never landed my feet in saying I'm non-resistance and that I would never use resistance in any situation. However, you know, in a story like this, it's like that's what I'm attracted to right there. I'm attracted to being on the offensive, but with a different sort of weaponry. To be bold, to not just cower and say, oh, I, I, I won't go, go into that battle. No, I want to go into the battle, but I want to go in with higher level weaponry. The sort of weaponry that heaven has supplied me. That's what I want to use. And, you know, what this looks like in our modern day, I'm not exactly sure. But one thing I know is that there is a no man's land and there's a whole bunch of barbed wire that has been set up between us and those that we need to reach. And if we're going to reach them, we can't just be shelling them. We can't be strafing them with machine gun fire. We need to be ready to bring out the soccer ball, the plum pudding, and the chocolate. I know some of you are still wondering about the cigarettes. We could leave those back in the trench. You know, hey, I, I still think that there's better things to give. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would train us in this exact truth of proates, that we would understand how to allow your Holy Spirit to work in us and through us, that you would fill us, Holy Spirit, with this, this power to think different, to act different, to respond differently than the world. Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart for those that are on the opposite side of the battle lines and those that are seeking to harm us and to kill us, that we would love them, that we would care for them, and that we would respond to them not as they are responding to us, but in the way that you responded to us. Lord, 
We ask for that grace, and we ask that you would build it, shape it, and form it within us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.